Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men. And we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today, we'll be hearing from Bruce C.E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Do you know what the 11 Hebrew words mean that God spoke to the woman in the Garden of Eden? Bruce and Joy put that and more in the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3. We invite you to get a copy today and make sure you have a solid foundation for understanding the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible. It turns out when Genesis 3.16 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And now enjoy today's episode of The Eden Podcast. The focus of this episode is not headship, but unity from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I think most parents have had this experience. They come around the corner and they see two or three or four kids all tangled up having a fight. They're on the ground, they're fighting, they're they're tangled up and they pull them apart and then they start figuring out what happened. And they have to figure out not only who was fighting, but why they were fighting and who said what. No, but he said, no, but she said. And eventually they find out the reason for all of that. What prompted the fight and and how to go about afterwards in trying to correct the kids so we don't see that happen again. We have sort of a fight going on here when we get 1 Corinthians uh, 11, verse 3. And we have to understand what's going on. We need to realize that in the context, starting with verses 4, 5, and 6, we have a quotation from contentious people in Corinth that are trying to dispute what Paul taught to do and what most of the Corinthian Christians were doing. But uh, before he gets to that, he does two things. One, he praises the general people, the the group, the major group that was following the traditions that he taught. And now in verse 3, he's going to set up the truth. He's going to say, now, I'm going to correct you. I'm going to recommend that you do what I said again, and you don't do what you've tried to counterpropose based on this basic principle. And the basic principle is in 11.3. The complicating factor is that this basic principle in 11.3 uses a word picture, an image that's very confusing to we moderns. And it's uh, to us, it's uh, there's been a lot of conflict about this. It talks about uh, something or so-and-so is the head of something else. Okay. So what does it mean to be the head of, and what do you have going on here? There are lots of people who say, well, it, it means to, to be the head of means to be in charge of, but some people say, no, that's not what it means. And they, they break down that analysis and they show why it doesn't mean to be in charge of. And I'm pretty convinced by their arguments. I don't think it does mean to be in charge of. There's another group of people that say, well, it really means to be the source of. And yet that first group criticizes those people who advance the argument that it means the source of, and they criticize them, and I break it down, and I think they do a good job. So what we have now is, in a sense, we have a discredited view that head means boss or authority over And we have a discredited view that head means source of, 
although there's a lot of good people on both sides that advance these things, I think there's something totally different going on. And it has to do with untangling the kids in the playground here so he can get to the main idea. His main practical application is verse 10, where he said, look, a woman is in charge of her own head. She can do what I told her to do. They can practice the way I told them to practice. They don't have to cover their heads. And, uh, but that's how he, get, he gets there from verse 3. So he's using what's what I call a one flesh or a joint body imagery. And he's describing something that he really doesn't have any words for. And so he's, he's, he's replying to them in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, now for the matters that you wrote about. And he had a remarkable proposal from the legalistic faction in Corinth. They'd mixed their harsh regulations with Paul's liberating new traditions. So he's going to quote them in verses 4, 5, and 6. But first, he's going to give them the key phrase, the key principle in verse 3. So Joanne Hagemeyer writes the study guides for our books, and you're with us. Joanne, can you take us through exercise number one, please? That would be my pleasure. Our first exercise is to identify Paul's overarching statement of truth in this verse. So in question one, we ask, the phrase, the head of, is stated three times here. And which is the overarching statement of truth and which are the subordinate clauses? It's interesting that you pointed out that way. Some people think we've got three parallel things going on, and I don't think so. I think we have one main idea. The first one is the head of every man is Christ. We'll explain what that means as we go, go further here. And then he has two subpoints about that. How do I illustrate that? How do I explain that the head of every man is Christ? And what he's saying here is the head of every believer is Christ. In other words, Christ and believers are joined together in one body. So he says, well, we've got the, the husband and the wife are joined together in one body. So he says the head of the wife is the husband. And then he says we have the Trinity here where we've got Christ and the Father together. So he says the head of Christ is God. So that's verse 3, and the overarching statement is the very first phrase, the head of every man is Christ. So I'm glad you went back to that, the head of every man. What does Paul mean by every man? And for help, we compare 1 Corinthians 11.3 with Ephesians 5.23b. This is good because a lot of people say, well, doesn't he talk about head someplace else? He does. He talks about it in Ephesians 5. And uh, we have our book, Beyond Eden, Ephesians 5, 15 to 6, 9, where we go into that in detail. We're going to be borrowing some of the images and some of the illustrations that we did in that book for, for this study right here, too. And there we simply have Christ is the head of the church. Again, is he the boss of the church? Is he the source of the church? Some people argue for those two views, and I think that's not what's going on. He's saying that Christ and the church form one joint body. They form one unit. They are together. They are united. And I know that's what he's saying, because when he gets down to 532, he says, this is the great mystery, something that was hidden before, but it's now revealed. He's saying Christ and the church are one. And he backed up a verse, and he quoted from the, from the Garden of Eden. He talks about the the husband and the wife, Adam and Eve, became one flesh. So you've got this whole unity idea. We've got two parts of one joint body. You've got the torso, you've got the head. All of this makes one unit. We have no problem thinking about the passages where they said, you know, I can't be the eye, I can't be the ear, I can't be the foot. We all form one body. We have all those little detailed pieces, and we can picture that as one unit. Well, let's just picture these two major parts of the body. We've got the, the, the head and we've got the rest of the body. And those two pieces go together to form 
one body. But then who is every man then? That uh, sounds like just men. Yeah, does it? Um, well, well, let's look into that more as we go along because the, he has several reasons why he uses these words, every man. But let's for right now just say as a placeholder, what we found in Ephesians 5, 23b, Christ is the head of the church. Okay. Meaning that Christ and the church are united. Well, that brings us into exercise two, which is understanding Paul's play on words. And Paul does use some wordplay. So how about telling us a little bit about that, Bruce? Well, Paul uses some wordplay to begin this response to those who did not hold to the, to the tradition he taught to the Corinthians. Usually a play on words has an extra element in it that draws attention to the fact that something extraordinary is being said, even though ordinary words may be used. For example, let's try this phrase. I'm going out into the refrigerator. That's a seemingly straightforward sentence, but... No one literally climbs into a refrigerator. So that literal sense of these words must be ruled out immediately. It's nonsense. There is an indicator that a play on words is being made. It's the word out. I'm going out into the refrigerator. Now, those of us who live in wintry climes know that when someone goes out in the winter, they go out where the temperature is as cold as it is inside a refrigerator or, or colder. And the person who says, I'm going out into the refrigerator is using a play on words to mean I'm going outside into the cold. There was never any intention of climbing into a ref real refrigerator. So let's compare each of the three the head of phrases. Which one contains this extra word that's indicating a play on words, and who does that word modify? Right. Well, that would be the first one, and what I think is the overall uh, directive phrase here. Christ is the head of every man. Uh, we're going to get into the use of the word man now. There's a word for male in Greek. There's a word for female in Greek. There's also a word for mankind or humanity in general in Greek. And this is not the mankind or the general term for humanity. This is the term for males. And so those who come to this passage with a conviction that, you know, Paul is uh, supporting this making a differentiation between males and females, and he's supporting this idea of covering women's heads, and he's supporting this idea of the uh, Jewish traditions being opposed on the Christian women. Maybe they don't think through all those details right away, but that's basically what's going on. And they, they get hung up on this, and they say, see, it's, it means male here. Well, the word that he uses, male, I think is a play on words. Not only does he say every, but he also says male. First of all, every. Every he's talking about every believer. Every believer, males and females. <laughs> then he says every man, using the word male. But he's still, again, talking about every believer. Now, I began to understand a little bit better what was going on when I went back to the Septuagint, the Hebrew scriptures, which were translated into Greek from the 3rd to the 1st century B.C. And I noticed that here and there, and not infrequently, the Greek word for mankind was was the word man, normally for males. They didn't have a problem with using male and man. There's some passages in Romans. You'll see this done again, too. Uh, so the readers of the, of the Septuagint had no problem taking the word males and meaning mankind or humanity. So when Paul says Christ is the head of every male, they understood that he could mean by this, oh, yeah, well, Christ is the head of every man. Knowing that a bit ironically, he's saying, yeah, if you want to fight about this issue of man, I'll talk about man, males, but I'll talk about it in such a way 
that we're talking about mankind. We're talking about humanity. So he says, Christ is the head of every believer, basically. That's what's going on. That actually completely clears up that passage because I'm picturing them saying, well, the men have their head uncovered. And Paul is saying, yeah, okay, every man is the head of Christ, meaning every person. That is just amazing. Well, we're going to go into exercise three, which is Paul's description of this body of Christ or his depiction of it. And going back to Ephesians 5, where you talked about Paul exploring this great mystery of the church's unity, we ask students to picture an ant's body. And then we go to Paul's illustration that actually begins in Ephesians 3, 6, where there are joint heirs, joint body, and joint sharers. Could you talk a little bit about that? We're interested in Ephesians 5 about this great mystery. And so I referred myself back to Ephesians 3. He's talking about this mystery. And a couple of verses later, he talks about these three things, joint heirs, joint body, joint sharers. And I had been standing in our home in Africa we were, where we were teaching in a, a small Bible school in the Congo. And I was, you got to look down when you're in Africa, make sure nothing's crawling across your feet. And there was a line of ants going by and uh, crawling all over each other. And I didn't want them to crawl over me. So I got distracted from my Bible study and my thoughts. And I kept looking at those ants and I realized, you know, those ants have three parts to it, but they have one body. And those three parts join together to form one body. We don't have, I don't have three parts. I have two parts. And the more I thought about it, I said, you know, this is a joint body that's one unit. I think that's what he's talking about. And then I looked at Ephesians 3, 6. He uses the prefix joint in Greek, which is soon, S-U-N. And he says joint heirs. And then he says joint body and then joint sharers. Joint body, I thought, that's it. That's exactly what's going on. So in the book, you'll see that I've got a, a crummy little illustration. I'm not good at drawing, but uh, you can see the three circles that form the head and the abdomen and the thorax. And I point to each one. I said, is the head the whole body? No. Is the abdomen the whole body? No. Is the thorax the whole body? No. And then in the drawing, I bracket all three together. And I say, is that one conjoint antibody? Yes. Well, we're going to go move down now from that and talk about the church. Is the head, all, if Jesus is the head, is he the body of Christ? No. Is the torso all by itself, the believers together, do we form the body of Christ? Actually not, although we talk about it that way a lot. So what forms the body of Christ? It's the head, Christ, plus the torso, the church. Christ and the church go together to form one spiritual joint body. So let's start with the first of these three unities, Christ is the head of every man. And we're going to go into Ephesians 3 and 4 and 5. In Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, he says, This is a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And that is that the Gentiles have become fellow heirs and members of the same body and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then we move into chapter 4, same letter. Paul says to the readers, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, because there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in all. And then finally, that uh, verse in Ephesians 5, verse 23, where 
Paul talks about Christ as the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. So if you were going to put that all together as Christ, the head of every man, how would you summarize that? Yeah, he would say Christ is united with every believer in one spiritual body. So every man becomes every believer. Yes. Let's talk about the next one. The husband is the head of the wife. And here we go right back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then we return to Ephesians 5, verses 28 through 32, and it says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. And then Paul repeats what we just read in Genesis. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, and this is a great mystery. But I'm speaking about Christ and the church. So how would you summarize all those scriptures? Again, the husband and wife are one flesh. They're one unit, and they are a great example for us uh, of the unity of two Christian believers in marriage. They're an example of the unity of all of the believers in the church. Now we're going to go back to the third unity that Paul describes, the head of Christ is God. And in your podcast and in this book, you talk about Deuteronomy 6.4, and here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And we move from there to Jesus describing what that means. It's just a most remarkable thing that Jesus would talk about the unity of the Son and the Father. And it's a longer passage. It's in John 5, 19 through 27. We ask students to read the whole thing. And Jesus goes back and forth. He says, The Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And then Jesus says, Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. And then he says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. It's very interesting how Jesus goes back and forth and back and forth. So if you were going to put these two scriptures together and describe this third unity, what would you say? Well, we're seeing the Trinity here, but but in John, he's, Jesus is talking about not all three members of the Trinity, but he's talking about Christ and he's talking about God. And so Paul picks that up. The Deuteronomy 6.4 verse is beautiful because it talks about uh, they the, are one. And it's not like the number one. You could talk about that. But this is uh, the one in Hebrew. It's echad, meaning uh, a unity made out of various parts. When you go back to the very, very beginning of the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, we see the creation in the very beginning was God the Father. We see the Holy Spirit hovering over the deep. And we see the Word creating in verse 3. And when you look at John chapter 1, for example, again, you see Jesus, the word back there in the beginning. So we've got the creative impulse, uh, the creation done by God, the father and by God, the son. And so when he says the head of Christ is God, and I say, yeah, he's showing the unity of these two members of, of the Godhead. I think you can understand clearly that's what he's talking about. So how about you put this all together for us? Just summarize the overarching truth Paul was seeking to make 
and, and showing how these two subordinate clauses support what he was saying. So let's look at this, this troublesome verse when he says that uh, Christ is the head of every man. He's saying Christ is united with every believer. And if you guys want to talk about men, I'll talk about men, but I'll talk about women and men, and we'll see how that plays out as we go along in the rest of the passage. And then to justify this idea of the importance of uh, unity made out of several parts, he says, look, we've got the example of the Christian husband and the Christian wife. The two of them become one flesh. They are one body. The husband is the head of the wife. They make one joint body. And he says, I can't even do any better than to give you this illustration, which is the head of Christ is God. These two members of the Godhead work together, and they form also one unity. There's a lot of heretical distractions people can get into if they don't understand the basic idea of this verse. They can go off and they can say, well, you know, God really is in charge of a subordinate Jesus. Or they can say, well, the husband really is in charge of the wife, regardless of what the situation is and how how sinful the one or the other is. Or they can say, well, Christ is related to the men in church more than he is to the women in church. There's all kinds of trouble you can get into if you get this verse wrong. So we're going to stress what it is. Paul is writing to his Jewish readers in this part of the passage, and he's saying, look, I'm going to talk to you about the Jewish rules and how they have been surpassed. We're going to practice things a little differently. And I want you to understand there's no distinction now between males and female because Christ is one with every male and female believer, just as a Christian husband and a Christian wife are united as one just as God the Father and God the Son are united as one. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. Do you have your own copy of the Book of Eden, Genesis 2-3, to and our other books on the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible? Visit our website at true316.com. Do you want to go deeper? You're invited to enroll in the current study unit of True School. Take a look. Go to true316.com slash school.